Well, we're going to be in Psalm 56 this evening, um, but before we get to Psalm 56, if you just turn uh, with me to 1 Samuel chapter 21. 1 Samuel chapter 21. Uh, oftentimes we find out that the Psalms have the background found in 1 Samuel or 2 Samuel. And it's believed that Psalm 56 finds its background in Psalm 21 in verse 10 through verse 15. And so I just want to read the text and consider it for a moment before we come back and read Psalm 56. In verse 10 we read this, And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish the king of of Gath. So, that is a phenomenal statement. That David is leaving his own people and going to the Philistines, specifically the birthplace of Goliath. Just think about that. The sworn enemies of Israel, the Philistines, and Goliath, the taunter and mocker of God and Israel, the very one that David slew, That's the place David goes. It tells you the desperation David felt and how dangerous he felt he was in a position with his own people. Now, we can debate the wisdom of David to go to the Philistines, and certainly that's relevant, but nonetheless, David's in such a position that he would leave his own people, flee from his own people as Saul's pursuing him, and go to the enemy to try to find comfort and protection there. Verse 7 or 11. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And so obviously David comes with the reputation of killing Philistines. And so they recognize that then when David's there, this is odd that David's here, and they don't trust David. Perhaps David's here to kill us. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see, the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall I, this fellow, come into my house? And so David goes to these extreme measures to find himself protected, to find himself to where he won't be possibly killed by the king of Achish, of Gath. And so, a strange position that David's in. That he leaves his own people, his own people want to kill him, he goes to the enemy, and then as the enemy recognizes This is David who once killed us. David finds himself again now in a situation where his life is in danger. So his life's in danger from his own people. His life is in danger from the Philistines. And so it's likely that he writes Psalm 56 in this situation. And if you'll notice in the superscription of it, it says, To the choir master, according to the dove of far-off terebinths, a mictum, of David when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Now let us hear what it is that David wrote 
Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise. In God I trust, shall I not be afraid? What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape. In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thanks offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. What's interesting is that it has this unfamiliar phrasing in the superscription, according to the dove on far-off terebinths. There's all sorts of arguments of what that's supposed to mean. Some say that it's supposed to give us an image or a picture of doves flying in the background. And that's the imagery we see when we read this. Others will say that the dove is a picture of David fleeing, as a dove would flee from danger. Whatever the background is, God wanted us to see some sort of imagery with a dove here as we begin this psalm. And you'll notice how it begins much like most of David's psalms do. We're not covering anything new. David's in fear of his life. People are saying things about David. But one thing I want you to notice in these first few verses, in verses 1 through 4, is that David's faith is undisturbed even when he's disturbed. David's faith remains strong even in the midst of certain death. David's trust in the Lord is not shaken despite what's going on around him. People want to kill him, yet his faith remains intact. His eyes are firmly set upon the Lord, even in dire circumstances. You'll notice what it says where he asks the Lord, Be gracious to me, O God. So he's asking for grace from God. Why? Because we don't get grace from man. Specifically, we don't get grace from our enemy. And he describes it. For man tramples on me. How long does he trample on you? How often does he trample on you? Well, he says, all day long an attacker oppresses me. Look at how he states this. He's trampled on. He states that twice. There's someone that's fighting against him. There is an oppressor over him. He describes them as an attacker. He describes them as enemies. He then even says, when I am afraid, 
David, the mighty warrior, is afraid as people are seeking to attack him all day long, twice it's stated. So there's this constant pressure upon him of people coming after him. He cannot turn to his own people because his people have turned on him and sided with Saul. He then can't go to the enemy because the enemy recognizes David once killed them. And David has no place of refuge. David has no place of security except for the Lord and the Lord alone. And he recognizes that. And in that desperation, his faith in the Lord is still there. It's not shaken. Let me ask you, when things come down upon us, how easily are we shaken? Here's the reality, that in life, trouble comes. In life, we face things that are hard to face. But yet, we, we have a God that we can trust. And David sets this example. He says in verse 4, remember, they want to kill him. He still finds time to praise God. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Notice what he says, I praise God's word. In God I trust. Now, with David, why is it that he could trust in God's word specifically? Why is it that the word of God brought him comfort? Now, for David, it's very simple. God came to David and says, I'm giving you an eternal kingdom. You are my anointed one. You will be, through you, through your son, will come an eternal kingdom. David knew that God had set him apart for a specific purpose. A purpose that you and I cannot share. But David clung to that promise even while it looked like his life was going to die. Now that's unique to David. What about our promise? What is it that we read in John chapter 6? All those that the Father has given me, I will never cast away, and I will raise them up on the final day, Jesus says. You see, whatever the world takes to you or brings to you, or whatever the world uh, comes at the church with, You have one promise, all that the Father has given the Son, the Son will keep and the Son will raise on the final day, is that this eternal kingdom of Christ, we are part of that kingdom. And it cannot be shaken. We are held in it by the King. That is our promise that we have, is just as David clung to the promises of God when things looked at their worst, so can we cling to the promises of God that regardless of what comes at us, King Jesus is on the throne and he will bring me home safely. He will keep me and the world cannot take me from him. David then goes back in verse 5 to give it not so much a physical attack, but he says, all day long they injure my cause and and. What this literally means when he says, injure my cause, is they, they twist my words. I think the NSAB says that it's they distort my words. Let me ask you this. Can you relate to that? Having your words twisted. 
having your words distorted, that you say something and those that don't maybe like you or maybe those that want to see harm brought to you, they take your words and just slightly twist them a little bit to bring you harm. That's what he's talking about here. What does it mean to to twist words, to distort words? It means to mislead. How do we mislead with our words? Well, we can leave out a little portion of the truth that make ourselves look good and make the person look bad. We can be vague in how we repeat something. We can be ambiguous. We can alter things. We can spin things a certain way, right? And that can happen to us. Or we could be guilty of doing that. But that's what it means. That's what David says they're doing is all day long they injure my cause or all day long they distort my words. They take David's words and they're using them against him. I think that one of the the most successful ways of distorting someone's words is to use their words, most of their words, but just slightly alter it a little bit. It can be really effective at distorting someone's words that way to to make someone look pretty bad, can't you? You just see this all the time where in in our day of where we want these quick quips that will be uh, catching the headline news of something someone said, and it's shocking, and then when you listen to everything that they said, you go, oh, well, that wasn't so bad. What is it that they tried to do? Distort their words. So we see that constantly. That's what they're doing to David as they're going after him. You know, when we think of people twisting our words, it doesn't have to be something outright and obvious. It can be just something simple of a slight alteration. And that's exactly what's happening to him. How frustrating is that to have your words distorted? Has that ever happened to you? How frustrating it is to have someone injure your words and use them against you? Have you ever experienced that? If you went to high school, the answer is yes. If you worked in the workforce, the answer is yes. You've experienced that. Chances are, sadly, if you've been a member of a church, you've experienced that. Well, look at what he says. All their thoughts are evil against me. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. So they're constantly after him. And he, he brings this prayer in verse 7. For their crime will they escape. What's he asking God to do? What he says, he says, in wrath... Cast down the peoples, O God. When peoples oftentimes is the same word for nations. But specifically, it's those that are going after him and trying to take his life. And an attack upon David is an, an attack on the anointed one of the Lord. It is an attack on the kingdom of God itself. It's to side with Satan. It's to side with the kingdom of darkness versus the kingdom of light. It is to side with the enemy. And so David is praying that the Lord would take them out. That his wrath would be down upon the people. That's his prayer. That's what David wants to see God do with his enemies. And what might be 
One of the most beautiful verses in all of the Psalms is verse 8. Notice the, the tenderness of it. You have kept count of my tossings. Some translations say my wanderings. That is everything that David's gone through. He says, you know all that I have experienced. He says, you have put my tears in your bottle. It's hard to understand what that means. And the best way I can think of how to describe it, and I admit this is probably not exactly it, but gives us an idea. I have wiped the tears from the face of both of my daughters many times. If you have children, you've done the same. If you've been around children, you've done that same thing. It's a tenderness of a father with a child. And there's two things to note about this. Is Number one is David's weeping because he's so distraught. And I, I, I know that we bring this out almost every Sunday, but it's good to be reminded of it. We see a lot of emotion in David, but David was also a warrior. He saw death. He saw violence. Violence came from his own hands. But yet he's in such a position that weeping is a constant. And he says that the Lord is keeping his tears in a bottle. Are they not written in your book? In other words, David's saying that despite all that I'm going through, the Lord is fatherly over me. The Lord is watching over me. The Lord knows everything I'm going through. Let me say that if you're a child of God, you are just that, a child of God. And there's never a time where the Lord is not aware of what you're going through. There's never a time where really you're alone. Even when you're like David and you feel alone. Where your enemies are out to get you. And your own people are out to get you. He says, then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. Notice what he says here. David has absolute confidence that when he calls upon the Lord, the Lord will actually take out his enemies. It's amazing when you follow the life of David. uh, David's life looks like it's going to be it. And then somehow the Lord, what feels like on our end of things, certainly for David, felt like it was like at the last second the Lord rescues him. David had confidence that the Lord would do that. The Lord had continually done that over and over again. So what does David say? He says in verse 10, in God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise. He repeats it twice. First he says in Elohim whose word I praise, and in Yahweh whose word I praise. He praises the word of the Lord. This is where the promises of God to David, this is where God has revealed himself to David, is by his word. And this is where God reveals himself to us, is by his word. And because of that, he says, in God I trust. Why? Because God had given him his word. And God's word is as good as God. He says, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. And he repeats this again. What can man do to me? 
That's the second time he says this, that I will trust in God, I won't be afraid, I will praise God. What can man do to me? While he's surrounded by men that could very easily kill him. He says, what can they do to me? And then David says in verse 12, I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. That is, I will worship you. David is confident that he will remain faithful in his worship. And he says this, For you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling. Look what he says, That I may walk before God in the light of life. God, in his sovereignty, rescues David so that David would praise the Lord. The Lord rescues us so that we will walk in his path. We are saved that we will follow Christ. We are saved that we will walk in accordance with the word of God. Now I want to look at this from a distance and take a step back now. I think that gives us an idea of not only the background, but the meaning of these verses that we look at. And the first thing I want to point out to us is this, is, and we've seen this before, is God uses trials to bring us to prayer. Trials in our life oftentimes bring us to our knees. Let me ask you, when do you pray the most? When things are going well? When everything's really smooth sailing, is that when you find yourself praying the most and the hardest? No, we usually find ourselves in prayer and our most intense prayer, our most fervent prayer, when things are not going how we thought they should be going. And then what we have to recognize is that the Lord in His sovereignty is using those things so that we will be transformed. So can you be transformed in trials? Absolutely, God uses trials to transform us. Scripture tells us this, Romans and James, that trials are used in our lives to transform us. We, we would think that there would be a better way we would like to choose a better way that I wouldn't have to go through trials to grow. But that's usually not how it works, is it? It's usually through trials that we do grow. Let me ask you, how do you view your trials? I, I think you could take this the wrong way where we go, I'm so thankful for this trial. This trial was wonderful. That's, that's not a real way of looking at things. But how do we view our trials? Do we view our trials as God in His sovereignty moving us and using it to transform us? For that we can have joy. And here's the other thing is this, is that trials are not wasted by mere chance. We don't believe in chance. If you believed in chance and that we have trials by chance, then you would have to believe that chance was its own independent power. It means this, is that God is working for your good and for His glory, even in trials. David shows us that repeatedly. But there's something else here I want us to, to look at. David repeats twice that he will praise the Lord 
And as he's being pursued by people, he says this, What can man do to me? What can flesh do to me? So in light of God's word to him that was given to him, he was confident that despite man coming after him, God was for him. It's a really hard statement and disposition of life to say, what can man do to me? David was being persecuted. He had real danger. There was physical danger. There was mental anguish from the gossip that was surrounding him. They were distorting his words. You know, when you're being attacked by an enemy, and we don't have an enemy where someone's coming after us physically, right? We just deal with stuff that are not on the same level that David dealt with, at least right now. It's really easy in those moments to compromise, to get yourself away from the enemy, isn't it? I mean, David probably could have forsaken the Lord. David probably could have done some things, maybe compromised here, compromised there, to alleviate the oppression somewhere. But he doesn't do that, does he? David remains faithful. You know, we can oftentimes escape mental anguish by simply giving in and changing or compromising things in some slight way. And there's that temptation before us, isn't there? So how do we get to where David was where we say, in our faithfulness to the Lord, by His grace... I'm not going to worry about what man says. I'm not going to worry about what man can do to me. I'm just going to keep my eyes focused on the Lord. How do we get there? Because that's a difficult place to be. And perhaps you've experienced that where you feel pressure to give in to man and take your eyes off of Christ. Let me give you two examples. The first is in Galatians, and you're familiar with this passage. I know it's in chapter 1 of Galatians. In verse 10, and Paul is right out of the gate coming after the Galatians because they're being influenced by the Judaizers that are bringing a different gospel. Look what Paul says in verse 10. He says, For Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant or I would not be a slave of Christ. In some ways, Paul is saying here, I'm going to keep my eyes on Christ. What can man do to me? I'm not going to be shaken by what man says. Now, it's an amazing statement that he says because in chapter 2, he gives them a historical example of that very statement. He says this in verse 11, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. This is Peter. And Peter was the leader of the church. Peter was the most prominent. Jesus recommissioned Peter and said, Feed my sheep, feed my flock. 
Peter was instrumental. The first half of the book of Acts is surrounded, uh, based around Peter. And Paul opposes him to his face. Why? Because Paul was not afraid of man. He goes on to say, For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself during the circumcision party. In other words, Peter's looking at man and saying, Oh, I don't like the pressure from man. I'm going to give in. Whereas Paul says, What can man do to me? What can flesh do? Peter's saying, Boy, they can make my life miserable. It goes on, verse 13, And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, before them all, he publicly rebukes Peter. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? How do we get there? Let me give you another example. If you look over in Acts chapter 4, in verse 19, Peter and John have been arrested, they've been beaten, they've been commanded not to teach the name of Jesus by men. Verse 19, it says, But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. What happens to them before saying that? Well, verse 21, And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priest had said to them. You know, they counted it a blessing to be beaten for the name of the Lord. When they're threatened, why were they not beaten more severely? Why were they not killed? The text tells us the only reason they weren't killed, only reason they weren't more severely beaten, is because the authorities were afraid of the people. That tells you the seriousness that they found themselves in. That's the seriousness of the situation for Peter and John, is that they're standing before men, and men are telling them, don't you preach about Christ, and they say, just like what David says, What can man do to me? What can man do to me? So how do we get there? Well, let me tell you that they trusted in the word of God too. In Mark chapter 13, in verse 11, Jesus had promised them this. It says, And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. 
Brother will be deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. That's the book of Acts right there in summary. That was the first century church. Brother giving over brother, father giving over son for the name of Christ. And what did those early Christians do? I think they said something like, what can flesh do to me? God is for me. Let me give you just one other thing. It's a command from the Lord Jesus where he says this in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. I think that that's how we get there. I think that that's how we get to that place where we can say, what can flesh do to me? What can man do to me? A couple things about this. First is that we have to recognize that in suffering, we are not above our master. Our Lord suffered. We see that the apostles suffered. David suffered. Suffering in this world is a reality until Christ comes and restores all things. Suffering is a part of life. If Christ suffered, we will suffer too. When Christ sends his spirit to comfort us, to guide us, to even direct us, and to bring remembrance the words of Christ, so that in that hour we have the word. His word is our guide in that moment. So we're not above that suffering. But I have to say this. Is there something freeing, and we have to recognize this, there is something freeing about saying, I'm not going to be bound by man. You've been set free to be a slave of God, a slave of righteousness. There is something free, freeing by not being bound by man, but being by, bound by man and being bound by men will prevent faithfulness. Now keep that in perspective. We are to keep each other accountable, and that's speaking directions to the church. We are to hold one another to the word of truth and to speak truth in love. That's directions to the church. But the reality is this, is that we will face opposition for faithfulness. And there's something wonderful about saying, I don't want to go through that, but it doesn't frighten me. Because in that I'm following in the steps of Christ. And this is what we must be reminded of as we look at this text in Psalm 56 As we look at this persecution David faced, this is actually just typifying Christ, as Christ himself was persecuted. Christ himself wept. Christ himself experienced betrayal 
from his own people and from the Gentiles. Christ experienced persecution. As David was rejected by Saul and the Philistines, it only gives us a slight glimpse of the rejection that Christ would experience on our behalf. And so the great thing is, is this for us, is that when we find ourselves in a place where we've experienced betrayal, when we find ourselves in a place where people have twisted or distorted our words, Jesus is sympathetic. Jesus wept on your behalf. God does not weep, but the God-man wept. So we have a great high priest, whether it's betrayal or someone unjustly coming after us. And the thing to remember is what the psalmist says, what David says, this I know that God is for me. So here's the beauty of the gospel, that if you are in Christ, Christ has given you his righteousness and the Father is now for you. So whatever the world wants to do, it's coming against the omnipotent, sovereign God. The world's coming after the one who created it. If God is for you, who can be against you? And if God is for you, it is because you are in Christ and he has given you his righteousness that you stand as a child of God covered in the righteousness of Christ. So it doesn't matter what man may say. It doesn't matter what man may do. If God is for you, no one stands against God. And all that the Father has given the Son will come to the Son, and the Son will never cast them away, and the Son will raise them up on the final day. That is our promise this evening, that if we are in Christ, we have that promise. What can flesh do to me? What can flesh do to you? What can man do to us? Nothing. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promises that are found in the gospel and the comfort that they bring us. We thank you for the promise that those that you have given to the Son will come to the Son and that the Son will keep it and will raise up on that final day. We're thankful that because of Christ, you are for your people. And so we praise you. We join the chorus with David and sing your praises for you are worthy of it. We are thankful for the deliverance. So we pray for your grace that we may walk before you in the light of life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.